You are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Welcome all you weirdos, militant pacifists, and everyone currently trapped inside of an egg. It is time for your 87th Weird Dose of X, the mutant member of your Weird Science family. I am your fedora and trench coat wearing host, Jason, broadcasting as always from the Wrong Turn Studio, high atop stately Weird Science Tower. And here with me, just back from vacation, is a man with all sorts of things loaded onto his clone, my pal Ruben. Hey Ruben, how are you doing today? Hey Jason, good to talk to you. Um, as one does when you go on vacation, I brought back cold, so I will be trying to mute myself as much as possible, but you might hear some extra sound effects on this recording. Okay, well, good luck with that. And for some reason, my Google speaker is talking to me. I don't know what I thought I was asking, but we'll just say there. Yeah, we apparently have a third member of the podcast today, so that's nice. Uh, well, the three of us are going to talk about two books today. You can, ask it to explain, uh, you can ask it to explain this Rise of the Powers of X issue number two. Oh, maybe it'll help. Uh, <laughs> see, Gabe on the, uh, on the, on the Slacks thinks, thinks maybe we can't. And I, I think uh, uh, who else was saying? I think it was Matt who was saying, yeah, he didn't want to talk about it either. So we'll, we'll see what we can do. It is a pretty complicated book. It might take uh, all three of us. We're going to talk first about X-Force number 49, and then we'll see what we can do with Rise of the Powers of X number two. Sound like a plan? All right, so here we go into X-Force number 49. We need to talk about Beast. Uh, it's written by Ben Percy, of course. Art by Robert Gill. Colors by Guru Effects. And letters by Joe Caramagna. Now, this is almost certainly, although I haven't seen it officially stated, this has got to be the penultimate issue of Ben Percy's X-Force, right? Uh, it's number 49. It says to be concluded. I've seen no solicitations for anything past 50. Got to be 50 and done. So it looks like he will have written that when all is said and done, 100 issues in the Krakoan era, 50 Wolverines, 50 X-Forces, which is, hey, that's, that's an achievement. He's never really been like the big book to talk about, but he's been here the whole darn time, and he's really the only one who can say that. Uh, getting any reflections on the B Ben Percy era, as it were? Um, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I'd say overall probably a six, a very middling writer who at times had some really cool storyline elements, but I agree. He was kind of off on his own, doing his own thing for the most part. And I would, I would say the Sabretooth war that he's kind of, you know, cramming out in the Wolverine story in my mind is maybe the best of what he's done recently. But um, yeah, he's never really enraged me. It's usually been just that book you can pick up and flip through and see some stuff and then forget about. I think the, maybe the biggest, the biggest things out of it were the death of Xavier at the beginning of X-Force. Sure. That was that was huge. That was the first time we really saw that this whole resurrection thing was really going to be all it was cracked up to be. Yeah. And then basically the, you know, turning Colossus and Beast into sort of villains. And now it seems like he's kind of just resetting them to the status quo. Yeah, I, I think those are the two big ones. I think the one that will be remembered mostly is this whole Beast turn because Colossus, he was mind controlled, right? You can say it wasn't really him doing it. You can go forward with Colossus and kind of, you know, forget about all that uh, chronicler stuff. But Beast, that was Beast doing this crazy stuff. So I think that'll be the, the, the take home. Remember when Ben Percy had Beast go really, really evil for a while? And it wasn't only in his book, of course. It was also happening in, you know, Immortal and in regular X-Men and all the other books. But I think probably that's what's going to be remembered. Now, this issue, uh, we don't usually talk about the covers, but this cover is particularly cool. It's by Daniel Cunha, shows Beast and Wonder Man bursting through a poster of the rest of the X-Force crew, which is, of course, a nice homage to the famous giant size X-Men number one cover. Uh, I would, you know, I don't collect physical comics at all, and I don't think you mostly do either. Is that correct? Yeah, I just, I've given up on physical comics maybe 20 if years I ago. If I did want to collect, I think it would I would be very, very specific, and maybe I would collect like all the different comics that have like an homage to giant size number one on the cover. And then maybe in DC I'll get all the action comics number one homages. Just just have a theme to it. But this is this is a nice one. It shows uh, yeah, our two uh two uh bronze age kind of buddies bursting through the uh, the picture. I like it. So there are three things going on in this issue, each getting pretty much equal page space, like six or seven pages each. We have Bronze Age Beast escaping from X-Force. We have X-Force trying to track down Bronze Age Beast. 
And we have Krakoan Age Beast continuing his own nefarious plan. So uh, let's start off with uh, Krakoan Age Beast, the, the one who's gone bad. Last issue, we saw him enter the very lax security of Krakoa further north and run off with a suit of Krakoan battle armor. This issue is after something else. He wants a mini nuclear reactor, so he steals one from the Naval Weapon Station in Seal Beach, California, which is a real place. Uh, he shows up in the battle armor, grabs the reactor, and on the way out, murders to death, I don't know, maybe a dozen Navy dudes? Pretty bad. Which kind of made me think, aren't mini nuclear reactors like a dime a dozen in the Marvel Universe? I mean, yeah. he could have just asked Kamala Khan's summer roommate to make him one, for God's sakes. <laughs> right? You can yeah. get them out of the gachapon machines at the airport. I don't know. Yeah. Just, they seem to be everywhere. Yeah, he could have made one himself, I'm pretty sure. But <laughs> He's friggin' whatever. beast, right? Yeah. But yeah, we want to emphasize that this beast is irredeemable. And I do think that's the conclusion at the end is we're wondering, is, is beast going to be redeemed? Is he going to come around? Uh, no, this, this beast is going to either be killed, shot into space, sent into the multiverse somewhere. This beast is just no good. So No Good Beast brings this nuke to his secret underwater lab, which is a step down from an orbital Nazi prison, but still pretty cool. And he starts to incorporate the reactor into whatever he's building. And as he does so, he starts to record like a Star Trek captain's log. He says he does this for posterity, for history, because he thinks he's so important. But also, in the event that he's killed or imprisoned, he wants someone to know how to, quote, undo what I'm about to do. So that's kind of unusual for him. He, he doesn't usually think about undoing the stuff he does or having anyone else fix any of his mistakes. So that kind of stands out to me. Then at the end of the issue, we, we see what Krakoa Beast has built. It's a black hole gun modeled after Forge's design, he says. So this is once again another version of that giant gun we first saw inside the Black Mercy vision of the Children of the Vault in X-Men 15. And then we saw it for real in the Dennis Camp Children of the Vault miniseries. But Krakoan Beast has made some modifications. The original black hole gun, as far as we knew, was just a very powerful weapon. He says that with this black hole gun, I will take Arako off the map. The mutants will be crushed into a cosmic vault, interesting choice of words, for safekeeping, and I can then begin my work against the humans in earnest. So yeah, that's a, what do you think of, of, of this beast plan? It's bizarre. So basically, his idea is to like get rid of the last mutants he thinks that pose the threat to him, so he can just run amok. Is that is that it? I think he wants to put into this, you know, sealed away black hole vault, just all the mutants still alive. Peer, period that he knows about. I don't think he knows anything about like the white hot room. So I think he's thinking get all all the mutants who are the only ones who matter sealed away, and then he can unleash I don't know viruses, nuclear war whatever crazy thing he wants to do and kind of kill all the people on Earth and then he's going to bring the mutants back. So yeah, he's gone full extra megalomaniac cuckoo. Not coming back, not going to be redeemed. And also, we know his plan's not going to play out because we, we only have one issue left. <laughs> you know, not to get uh, too much of an outside the comic view of things, but 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 yeah, he, it, we're not going to see this happen. So next, let's check in with Bronze. <laughs> Pardon? Oh, I'm just imagining a world where issue 50 happens, he kills the entire Marvel Universe. <laughs> Maybe there'll be an announcement of another shocked. miniseries. Who the heck knows? Probably not. So next, let's check in with Bronze Age Beast. He's a fresh clone, created just last issue and uploaded with the mind and personality of Beast circa 1985 in, in our time. Sage, in particular, thought that having their own Beast would, would help X-Force catch the other Beast. So they put their new beast in a jail cell and allowed a very sleepy Black Tom to watch over him. Not smart. Black Tom fills Bronze Age Beast in on the situation, and then he suggests that, you know, the team might end up just killing you off, buddy, after you've served your purpose. Which, uh, come on, Tom, what are you thinking? Even if you think that's true, you don't say that out loud. And then Tom does his best Luke Hollywood impression and falls asleep, allowing Beast to escape and skedaddle running out into the Arctic night. When we first see Bronze Age Beast in this issue, he's made it all the way to Los Angeles. I mean, the caption box says he's in LA, but it's raining, like real hard, which I don't think happens in LA. So uh, I think he's probably in Seattle. Once again, what do you, what do you think, Ruben? Do you think uh, we're actually in Seattle, mislabeled? <laughs> yeah. I can't tell obviously. from the skyline. I, I, you know, I heard on the radio just this morning that it never rains in Southern California, so can't be true. So how did he get to 
the West Coast exactly? I don't think we're supposed to think about it. Some flying, some driving. But again, it's that first leg doesn't make any sense, right? Where did he run to from the North Pole? Where did he catch his first plane or bus or cab or whatever? Again, I don't think Ben Percy wants to think about that, but I can't help it. Anyway, here he is. And it's, he's a five minute, it's a five-minute joke. <laughs> it's a civilization from Krakow North. I mean, in the Marvel <laughs> Universe, they've extended light rail everywhere, I guess. I don't know. It truly is a paradise. Uh, so anyway, here he is, and he's wearing a classic Marvel disguise, the same one that Ben Grimm uses. Maybe he borrowed it from him, right? Trench coat and fedora. Works every time. I love it. Very classic. Very Bronze Age. He leaps around rainy Los Angeles and breaks into an apartment where he gets into a brawl with the occupant of said apartment. Now, were you really in suspense here as to who this guy was he was fighting with? Or had you seen the cover of this comic book? (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) Come on. Come on, Ben Percy. We know who this is. Yeah, I was looking at that art. I'm like, why is this in shadow? It's so stupid. It goes on for like two pages. I'm, I'm, I'm sure Ben Percy didn't know what the cover was going to be, but it made me go, come on, like, who, who are you teasing here? Uh, of course I, also love, uh, mm-hmm. I also love this part where like Wonder Man's like, yeah, I kind of gave up the superhero thing. And the freaking dude's still in his Wonder Man outfit. I'm like, <laughs> just put on some clothes. You're an actor, right? That's a darn good point. Yeah, what was he? Maybe it's laundry day. That's the only thing clean. Uh, also, man. yeah, I. I I'm not really <laughs> caught up on Wonder Man these days. I know he's supposed to be like a pacifist, but I don't really know the details of the why and the how and the like how how militant he is about it. What actually counts? I don't think it matters too much. Do you you uh, you a big Wonder Man guy there, Ruben? If if, if there's something we're missing, uh, listeners, let us know what uh, what Wonder Man's been up to and, and why it, how it informs yeah, your story. We get angry hate mail. It's like his costume is fused to his body. You're so insensitive. I'm, I'm, that's, I feel bad already, even to just imagine that. Yeah, if that's what's going on. So he's actually naked. Uh, anyway, I don't want to think about naked Wonder Man. But he talks about how being a pacifist, and, and that's kind of all we know about him. It turns out that Sage was 100% correct that this beast would be able to figure out what the other beast was up to. She was right. Uh, this beast uses Simon's modern laptop. And he's really not impressed by it. I wouldn't think that a guy just basically unfrozen caveman lawyered into reality might say, wow, this is a crazy small laptop, but maybe, you know, time scales are different and Marvel technology. Anyway, he's very much not impressed, which was a weird thing to put in there. I mean, he saw Cerebro, right? So True, little Dell laptop is not going to be that impressive. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, how much RAM does it have? Yeah, <laughs> good point. Yeah. Uh, so he uses the computer and... It's really just a device so that this beast can figure out that the other beast has been stealing stuff all around California, including that nuclear reactor. And yeah, so they're going to go out and, uh, I don't know exactly, stop the other beast. So yeah, I don't know exactly what the plan is or how he knows exactly where to actually go. But again, I think he probably knows where the guy's going to be because once again, only one issue left. All right, finally time to check in with the rest of the X-Force team. It's morning, so Beast has been gone for some time. So, Ruben, should we worry about how day and night work kind of different at the North Pole and how night can last six months? Do you think I'm Ben Percy's worried, worried about, about how that? Ben Percy doesn't know how space gravity works? <laughs> or, yeah, that's true. So, I don't so think I'm we're supposed to worry about him, that. Yeah, to be that. Yeah. Once again, day and night, it, it, it should be very different at, at the North Pole, but it's not. It's a very regular 24 hour day. They're not actually uh, at the North Pole. That's the answer. <laughs> To both things, they just think they're they're up there. Could be, could be. They're like right next to Anchorage. <laughs> Isn't there it's a place called at- like a North Pole, Alaska? <laughs> like the town's named North Pole. Yeah, maybe yeah. that's it. Yep. Uh, so wherever they are, possibly in Los Angeles, Logan and Sage are having their morning coffee when Black Tom runs in, gives them the bad news that their brand new clone has skedaddled. Sage- I had a hard, I had a hard problem, like a big problem with this part. Mm-hmm. So they're like. He has a 24-hour head start on us, right? They say that at this part. I was like- I think 20, but know, yeah. Nobody freaking checked on the jail cell for 24 hours? Like, well, this is really bad jump. security. Really bad security here. So, it's weird that they didn't notice him leave. I mean, he, he kind of can- They didn't delete Beast from all their security accounts, so he was able to just turn things off. Okay, I can buy that. Maybe there's a jump in time between scenes, and like they were looking and looking and looking for him for hours and hours. And then when they finally catch him, it's 20 hours later, like maybe eight hours overnight and something like that. 
I need something to explain it because I was like, that is the crappiest security ever. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, I, I should Especially say that he's like your master plan, right? Like, it wasn't like he was like, oh, we'll figure out what to deal with him. Like, what to do with him? We got to deal with these other issues. It's like they brought him back specifically to deal with like the one problem, right? Right. He's their, their, their big play and they decide to go off and go to bed and have Black Tom. Guys. Yes. Never yes. put Black Tom in charge of guarding any of your prisoners. That's the lesson. No. Here. Yes. So he's gone and they spot him in California, which is also where Krakow and Beast has been spotted. So they know both beasts are in the same area. And Sage jumps to the conclusion with her jump to conclusions, Matt, that Bronze Age Beast wants to team up with Krakow and Beast, doubling their beast problem rather than solving it. Whoops. So she's right that he, they want to get together. But she's wrong in the motives of Bronze Age Beast. Logan, Domino, Laura Colossus, and oh, hey, Omega Red, he still exists. Uh, they head out in the Bluebird, the flying submarine, while Sage, Kid Omega, and Black Tom, they stay at Krakoa further north. Bronze Age Beast was caught by a camera when he was taking that speedboat, and so Bluebird very quickly catches up to him and to Wonder Man in that sto- stolen speedboat, and the Bluebird is about to blow him up. Now, we've seen this before, haven't we? I think it was in Wolverine, where they're about to blow up the regular Wolverine instead of the bad Wolverine. It seems like a Ben Percy thing he's done, maybe once too often. And also, it's weird that the camera saw a beast stealing the boat, but didn't seem to get any pictures of Wonder Man, Simon. Yeah, that was another issue I had with this. I was like, okay, I get this idea that you think maybe Beast is going to join up with Beast and you don't want two beasts together. But the moment you see Wonder Man, wouldn't you be like, hey, that's weird? I would think so. And again, if, if I'm going to try to fix this, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, Sage wrote an algorithm to sort through all these you know, gigabytes, terabytes of you know, camera data that she's stealing, right? So maybe her algorithm is only looking for big, furry blue guys. And it like, so the camera saw Wonder Man, but it just didn't alert. Maybe that's, that's my best, best attempt. Because we see him in the boat and he's like right there. Just, it's not like there's a, you know, under the deck spot in this little speedboat. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem that they're really being seen by the people in the bluebird up above. They're really going on, oh, this boat left from there, and the camera saw a beast get into that boat. So I don't think there's any visual confirmation of them seeing, seeing beast. Oh, well. So that's our issue. Besides the beast stuff, my uh, biggest remaining question is, Will Omega Red get a line of dialogue in the next issue? <laughs> uh, what are the Vegas odds on that? Probably not too good. My headcanon remains that Ben Percy has completely forgotten Omega Red exists, or maybe he thinks he killed him off and he stayed killed off, but the artists keep drawing him in the backgrounds of panels anyway. Now, prove me wrong, Ben Percy. Make Omega Red the big hero of X-Force number 50. Yeah, uh, he'll get a big, <laughs> some kind of groan. <laughs> could be. But yeah, a pretty fun issue. Some of those gaps we talked about. How did Bronze Age Beast get where he's going? The, the time, uh, the dock security camera, all that stuff. But it's the kind of gaps we're pretty much used to in this Ben Percy era. And it's not the worst ones we've seen. They're, they're kind of funny ones. Yeah, it's uh, more funny than anything else. And I actually enjoyed seeing the Bronze Age Beast and just seeing how funny he is. I'm just like, oh yeah, that Beast was not a megalomaniac back in the day. I kind of want this Beast back. So success there right like they showed us and the dialogue sounds good it gives me that nostalgic feeling for those old comics it has the feel of this this era of beast to me not that i'm a huge reader of that era but it feels right and the interaction between him and simon is a lot of fun Uh, also the the look uh, robert gill's art always looks great Uh, especially love those panels of bronze age beast in his trench coat leaping around rainy los angeles uh, and he really just, in the visuals, he too sells a difference between these two beasts. You can tell just by looking at the way they hold themselves, you know, is it Krakoa beast or is it Bronze Age beast, which is, that's got to be a tough thing to do, but he, he really gets it done. Uh, there's that one wonky page, uh, the one illustrating Krakoan beast diary talking about the cast of X-Men Red on Arako. And that just looks almost like it was done by a different artist or like it was like tossed off in a few minutes. It's very, very sketchy, very rough. I'm not sure what was going on there. But other than that, really good art, pretty good story. Uh, enjoy the characters. I'm going to go with uh, 7.8 out of 10. How about yeah. you, Ruben? Very close to you. I'm just going to say 7.5. 7.5. This is sort of, I don't want to say this is Ben Percy at his best, but this is sort of the, you know, above the average Ben Percy issue for me. And mm-hmm. um, 
it's kind of ending on a strong note. I think one more issue of this to wrap everything up is probably the right amount. And I will be happy to see Dictator Beast taken off the table. Yeah, it's got to happen one way or another, whether he's actually dead or something else happens. He he can't be continuing. I, I don't think he really has a place in the fall of the House of X, rise of the powers of X. I don't think having that bad old beast, you know, hanging around on the edges of that story would really serve that story. So I, I'm pretty sure he's going to be taken off the table somehow. All right, moving on to our second book today. This is Rise of the Powers of X, number two of five. Out of Space, written, of course, by our man Kieran Gillen, art by R.B. Silva, colors by David Curiel, letters by Clayton Cowles, designed by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. So yeah, this this is the challenge that our fellow slackmates have issued to us, how to discuss this crazy issue. So I think it'd be impossible to go through it like page by page, like it's a regular linear story. But I think we'll do more of a thematic thing. Like Here are some things we learned about in this issue. Yeah, I want to comment on this really quick, too. I actually don't think the linear progression is that confusing. It's just a lot of really big ideas that make it overall confusing to understand. But I actually, um, I want to go on record and saying, like, even though this is a challenging issue to talk about, I, I was actually happy reading it. And this is one of those ones for me, at least, where I reread it and I saw things I didn't catch the first time. It made it make a little bit more sense. And in general, in my mind, it's just pretty cool. So I don't mind this being a very difficult issue. Um, it is very night and day, like this this part of the you know, final series of the Krakow era. It's like so different than um, the fall of the House of X. But yeah, different from the Jerry Duggan stuff. Certainly, super different from the the book we just finished talking about, the you know X Force. Just a completely different style of telling a story. And hey, I like both. You know, I like I like having both kinds around. Yeah, there's a few parts where it's like a little too much descriptions of some technology that I didn't need, and maybe a little too light on some other things. Like I really need to understand how the snow place got formed. Like it seems to do all this like mm-hmm. magical stuff and like how do people know how to pilot it? That kind of irks me a bit, but um, I did look at uh, Kieran Gillen's newsletter that comes out kind of whenever he has something published. And he does say specifically that this is supposed to be one of those in media's res join in the middle of the story kinds of stories. So he's intentionally hasn't told us the beginning of the story and was supposed to kind of discover that along the way. So it does feel like, again, it, it also feels like the stuff that we're not being told is intentional. It's not like, oh, we just forgot to say that and we don't have it figured out. It re- I, I really do bet that Kieran Gillen knows exactly how all this happened, but the way he wants to tell the story is kind of inside out, back to front, which I, I, I trust him enough to think it's going to work out. It's a bit more of an homage, too, to like the original House of X, Powers of X. Because that, that oh, was very certainly much has like that, that like, feeling of it, yeah. You don't know what's going on and this is weird, cool stuff. Um, and you're just kind of along for the ride. One hundred percent. You have to be like a trusted writer to pull this kind of story off. And I'm I'm with you. I'm on board of the Kieran Gillen train. Yeah, that very different feeling than in the Jerry Duggan stuff right now. This feels a whole lot more like this is what I want to call back to. Not even like the the concept, but just the feeling of those first twelve issues. We went, wow, this is really something amazing happening. So speaking of something amazing, let's first talk about Professor X's full team here in the No Place. We now know. All the members, two were left out the first time. The three we knew about already were Professor X himself, Rasputin the Fourth, and Doug. We knew, yeah, we knew these. That Doug was acting a little odd, and part of his data page description last time was redacted. And we'll get to him in a moment. The missing two, well, I had very confidently predicted that Manifold was going to be one of them, and I was wrong. Again, he may have been tied into the creation of the No Place. I still think that works really well with how his powers work, but. For right now, he's not on the team, and he's doing something over in Fall of the House of X. He might not be connected to this at all. The actual other two members of the team are Rachel, we saw on Dead X-Men, perfect sense there, and Mother Righteous. That was a shock. I, I think we've probably even said out loud on the podcast, boy, when is Mother Righteous going to come back back on screen? I thought maybe we'd have to wait all the way to, uh, uh, what is the, Immortal X-Men? Is that the other Kieran Gillen one coming up? No. X-Men Forever, sorry, X-Men Forever, which is kind of the continuation of Immortal. I thought maybe we'd have to wait for that, but no, here she is. Uh, And she's been trapped inside of an egg that seriously nerfs her powers, which is a weird sentence to say out loud, and we have no idea how it happened. Again, I think this is what you are talking about earlier, like how was this no place formed? How did they get Mother Righteous trapped in an egg? (laughs) 
again, I, I trust we're going to find out at some point. I, I really want to know that story. So inside this egg, she can't cast any spells. She can't reveal any, quote, classified information. But she can communicate with that artificial version of herself that, that she sent into the white hot room in Immortal, and that's still there now. So she's really just like a, a living radio, right? She can send information back and forth. A way for them to communicate with the people in the white hot room. It's basically all they use her for. Yeah, it reminds me of like in some science fiction stories, uh, like the Orson Scott card stories, they talk about like entangled quantum particles that allow you to communicate over great distances. That's, that's kind of what she is here. But two parts of her description on the data page are redacted. The person who helped construct the egg she's in and the identity of that other person whose name she's not allowed to speak. And I'm pretty sure, again, this took me a couple of readings, but this has got to do with that other person on the team who is Doug Ramsey, asterisk. So we noticed last time that he was acting kind of strange, you know, more gruff, just saying mean things that Doug would never say. And we wrote that off as, you know, he's he's been through some hard times, you know, give, cut him some slack. Uh, this issue, it's even more noticeable, talking about maybe we just go back in time and shoot baby Moira in the delivery ward. Not a very Doug thing to say. And then we learn what the deal is with Doug all the way on page 19 when he turns towards us and we see a bright red diamond on his forehead. That was a hell of a panel. That made me literally gasp out loud. I'm, I'm a pretty jaded comic book reader, but that, that made me go, oh, wow. So it's shocking, but it's the best kind of shocking where once you think about it for like half a second, you go, yeah, I, I get it. That makes perfect sense, right? Yeah, it was, it's the, and it was the kind of foreshadowing that didn't feel like foreshadowing at the time, but in retrospect, works great. So this Doug says, I wanted to eavesdrop, meaning using sinister psychic powers, but that would reveal what else I have loaded onto this clone. So last time we saw the real Doug was in Immortal 13 when Krakoa suddenly and without warning engulfed him down into the pit. So I think the real Doug is still hidden away. There was like the possibility, yeah, this is like, a, I think it's a fresh clone. I think this is a fresh clone that Xavier created so that he could somehow transfer that psychic ghost of Mr. Sinister out of his own head into something else. But he wanted it to be in someone that the other members of the team would accept and that wouldn't give away all his machinations because Professor X is just, he's being a real jerk here. He's hiding all sorts of things from all sorts of people. And he doesn't want anyone to know that he's working with Mr. Sinister. He wants everyone to think, oh, this is just good old Doug. Other possibilities like, oh, was the real Doug also infected by Sinister? Yeah, I don't think, I don't so. think so. I think that line where they say, when he's talking about Rasputin, he says, I apparently made her and then lied to her for a few centuries. That it doesn't make sense if this is like a Sinisterized version of Doug. Yeah, and also when Doug says talking about you know the things he's loaded onto this clone, I, I think that's really the the big giveaway. So yeah, this uh, would also explain the redaction of the Mother Righteous page, right? The person who helped make that egg around her, probably Mister Sinister. The identity that she's not allowed to say out loud to anybody. Hey, she can't say Doug is really Mister Sinister. I think that's pretty cool. And once again, Professor X is it's crazy because in a way he's the hero of this whole era, and in a way he's very much the opposite of that. And you really see how his his plans have never really been you know, as clean as he makes them out to be. Good stuff. So that's the team. What's the plan? Well, there are three plans, even more if you count the various lies Xavier tells about them, but three main plans. Plan, was, was, plan one was to stop Enigma from ever happening. And you know we saw that fail in issue one, and maybe that was never in the cards because causality and it already happened, so it has to have happened, but whatever it is, it's out. Plan two is what they're working on now. Have that dead X-Men team get the information about Moira's early pre-moon mutant awakening life. Professor X will then go visit young Moira, kill her, and that'll prevent the Moira engine from ever having been created, preventing the various sinister types from using it to get to Dominion, and the cost of this being that without Moira, Krakoa, as we know it, never comes to exist either. Kind of confusing. Again, the whole causality outside of time and space thing. If Enigma exists, can we go back in time to make sure he didn't exist? Uh, and, and I think it's nice that we're not the only ones raising these questions, right? Who who else brings this up? Yeah, this this was helped a lot because this is one of the things we were saying after reading the first issue. Like, yeah, cool issue, cool idea, but Dominions don't work the way that you're thinking, right? Mm -hmm. So Mother Righteous and her egg is basically like, 
you're an idiot. Like this isn't going to work. You've already lost, right? It's one and you can't, you know, pull it out by the root because there's no root at this point, right? It mm. just exists. Yeah, it was, I thought it was really great having that lampshaded right there on panel. You know, it's it's good that we don't have to pretend that these characters are all stupid, that they can't see the things that we can see. So having Mother sit, mother Righteous say, yeah, yeah, come on, guys. Yeah, and there's a good part too where they talk about like, yeah, we know what you're saying, but we don't have any other plan. We have to do something. And we see that it's got these sentinels in the time stream, which makes it seem like it's trying to protect against something, right? Very true. Yep. So, and so we know that works. Moira is also has an outside of time and space kind of component to her own wacky powers. So Domin- the Dominion Enigma is kind of worried about her. So something about her seems to be a threat. So Xavier, of course, isn't being honest with everyone about the true version of this plan. He knows he's planning on killing Moira. Rasputin knows. Sinister Doug knows. But Rachel and her team thinks he just wants to talk with her, which is pretty naive of them. But that's the second plan with all its twists and complications. Plan three. All we know about the third plan is that it exists. Completely redacted. Uh, Xavier has some backup plan to his backup plan, which of course he does because it's Xavier. Uh, What's redacted isn't very long, maybe five or six words. So something's going on. I had been mistaken about the second plan when we talked about it in issue one, right? I had, I, I think I told you even that the second plan was to kill young Moira in her very first life, right? That's what I thought it was, not Moira at 10, Moira 1. But it's made clear in this issue that plan two is to kill young Moira in her 10th life. So maybe the third plan is to go all the way back to Moira number one and kill her then. Again, maybe this is just me trying to rescue my <laughs> my incorrect statement from last time, my incorrect guess, but that's the only thing I can think about is maybe this completely unknown third plan goes all the way back there. Wouldn't give it good odds, but that's all I can come up with. You have any any guesses or speculations on plan three? What it could be. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure. Maybe it's something to do with the X-Men becoming a Dominion for, for nothing else. Maybe that's how you get rid of Araco, right? Everyone wants to be a Dominion, so maybe that's it. Yeah, it's got to be something. If you have a Dominion versus Dominion, maybe they can cancel each other out. And I would hope it's not something completely out of nowhere or out of no place, as it were. Something. I hope it's something that makes sense story-wise with what we've seen before. But obviously, I I say obviously. I think it's pretty obvious that Plan Two is going to fail because they wouldn't be hinting about the existence of a Plan Three if we're never going to see it. So at some point, I would think Plan Two is going to fail. Maybe because of you know what Mother Righteous says, like duh, causality doesn't work like that, and and we're going to get to see what Plan Three is some point. Okay, time to talk about the white hot room. Speaking of things that don't fully make sense, uh, all the mutants from that portion of the post gala issues of Immortal are still there. We got Hope, Exodus, that other artificial version of Mother Righteous, and all five of the five. Jean Grey is also there, still mostly out of her mind, and also. Very, very stabbed, right? That's all the stuff that Mother Righteous did to her at the end of Immortal. She's still in a really bad, bad shape. Probably being saved to be the Phoenix ex machina at some point in the story. She's going to come out and, yeah, she's going to, you know, come out of, uh, out of the locker room at some point and, oh, that's Jean Grey's music playing and something's going to happen. Whether she actually succeeds at fixing it all or, if, you know, she also fails and something else has to happen, we're going to see her do something. Who is the gold skinned person who is like trying to heal her? Ah, that is Elixir. He is one of the five. He's one of the healing type mutants. He's, I mean, he's, and technically he's really important to this whole era because he's one of the five, but we haven't really seen him do much other than stand around in line with the other four. But yeah, I got confused. I was looking at it. I was like, it kind of looks like Doug, but it doesn't make any sense to me. (laughs) Exactly. That's what I thought it was at first too, but I had had to do some poking and, and that's who it is. He's an Omega level healer. So he has, has to do with, making the egg viable and all that stuff. So that's why he's trying to be the one to help Jean Grey heal, both probably mentally and from the whole stabbing thing, but showing that even he can't make her healthy again, she's really, really in bad shape. And we also get a full page view here of the whole white hot room portion of Krakoa, which has a beam of light shooting out from it, which looks great. I mean, I think that's a beautiful looking poster kind of a, a page. Don't know what we're supposed to take from it. Do you what what do you think we're supposed to learn from this this page of I was a Pacific Krakoa, whatever the one is in, in the yeah. White Room? I think the main idea is you see these like dark clouds encroaching. It, it okay. Like they're moving to me. And my guess is this is just kind of showing the 
life force of the Phoenix kind of fading okay. away and, and the White Hot Room itself kind of collapsing in and of itself. Yeah, we know that at the end of Immortal, that whole failed spell thing that, that she was trying, Mother, Mother Rights was trying to sacrifice the Phoenix to get herself to be Dominion. And of course, she got cut off by Enigma because that's what Enigma does. So I'm guessing maybe this has to do with the damage done to the White Hot Room and that whole process. Like this is probably mirroring what's going on with Jean Grey herself. That's that's my guess. But again, just looks looks terrific. Okay, so now we're going to talk about their process of trying to carry out that second plan, which is like the whole action-y part of the issue. Uh, this must be taking place sometime after the events of Dead X-Men number one, because the information obtained by the Dead X-Men team is used by the No Place team to help them travel through, the, what do we even call the space between universes in Marvel? I want to say the bleed, but that's DC, yeah. right? I'm going to call it the bleed because that's with the, the only yeah. concept that I recognize. They're, they're, they're traveling through the bleed and they want to get to young Moira. Uh, but Enigma has sent sentinels after them. And these are some new spider-like arachno sentinels. Do we know why spiders are involved or just because they look cool on the page? Yeah. That I, was I one of those things where I was like, it doesn't make any sense to me. Is there a thematic than, connection? Yeah. Yeah. Webs, maybe. I, I, I don't really get it. Yeah, again, that makes me think of like Mother, uh, yeah, uh, Madam Web, which haven't seen that movie, probably won't. But I think that's like the spider version of how universes work, right? The spiders on the web. But we're not really talking about spidery stuff. I, I think probably just uh, to give the, the artist something cool to draw. And they do look really cool. They have, you know, uh, this, this, the crown type symbol of Enigma on their, I'm going to go with abdomens. Looks really, see, it looks scary, looks cool. There's also some Stark Sentinel types mixed in with skull faces, also just probably because they look cool. Not a lot to say about the fight scene between them and Rasputin other than, yeah, it's a cool looking fight scene. Uh, this is also the scene Hickman uses to get Rasputin out of the way to give us that sinister Doug reveal. So I think that's the other purpose of this. You know, we got to have a fight scene and this is a good way to, you know, get the person who doesn't need to know about sinister Doug out of the picture for a moment. Yeah. I thought it was interesting how the Sentinels found the no place. So one thing I thought was pretty cool when they talk about the Enigma and like what it is as a Dominion is it seems like it has a very temporal perspective, meaning it doesn't see, it's not omnipotent, right? It doesn't see everything all at once at all times, kind of has to focus its attention on a different area. Yeah, it's it's almost like the book's already written and it's kind of flipping back and forth through the pages and finding different stuff in the book, but it's not seeing the whole book at once. Yeah. So basically, like looks down these like you know lifelines for people and tracks them right, and it tracks Xavier to like when he disappears and it can't really see where he went. So it's like, oh, that's weird. So then it just like looks into the future and it's like, oh, I see a spot where like their whole base is like wrecked and people are killed. Great, now I know where they are. So it's kind of uh, you know they were hidden right, like wherever they are, they mm -hmm. can't actually see, but it sees the end where they lose. So yeah, it's like Gillen giving us what it's like to be a Dominion and how it does have some limitations, but not very many. So we are being told what it can and can't do, which may be a big deal, you know, as we go on to figure out how it gets defeated. Which helps because later at some point they're like, hey, we can go to this place and we got like 30 seconds before or 30 minutes before it like likely has found us. Yeah, there was kind of an artificial bit of dialogue where they say, okay, we can go to each of these timelines, but we can only do it once because then Enigma will know where we are, which I don't think that was incredibly well motivated. And I don't really know what the implications are, but there's some kind of limitation in there on them. So they get to the timeline where Xavier's going to step out and have whatever moment he's going to have with young Moira before her powers awaken. We don't get to see that meeting yet, but we do see him exit the no place. And did you notice what the door looks like that he exits through? Yeah, not the first time, but the second time. I actually did kind <laughs> of laugh when, when Rachel and Rasputin are staring at it. I'm like, as soon as you see a diamond, you'd be like, uh, It's a big old diamond-shaped <laughs> door. Okay, come a, on. This plan is not a good plan, right? We've been duped. <laughs> I, I, on this page, too, uh, Rachel's face is drawn very wide-eyed and naive, uh, which at first I thought was, I don't really like the way her face is drawn here, but I guess it's almost like the artist saying, yeah, she's... She's really that bought in. She's really that kind of not paying attention as Xavier steps through a big old diamond. Very funny. Uh, yeah, and I, I'm really curious. I guess next issue we'll see that meeting, maybe, and we'll see it work or not work, or we'll see what reactions are when he actually tries to kill her and Rachel sees what's really going on. 
That'd be interesting. I did like the conversation between him and Rasputin because she knows that he's really out to kill Moira. That was the revelation at the very end of issue one of this series. So she's in on that part of the plan. She's not in on the Sinister Doug part of the plan. So even just Xavier's brain keeping track of who knows what and what lie he's told to what person has got to be got to be crazy. Good thing he's uh, he's so smart. Okay, the last bit. Uh, let's talk about Enigma and Moira. Uh, big Moira issue, really. Enigma has been watching over her. Like Enigma narrating most of the issue, at least the parts that are not in the no place, which he can't see. Uh, Enigma knows there's some vulnerability, some danger attached to her power, which is like we said, why he's trying to prevent Xavier's team from getting to her. On the very last two pages, just after we see Xavier exit through that diamond-shaped door out of the no place, we go to Earth. Now, timeline-wise, we're sometime after the mutants have invaded Earth and attacked Orcus, and the mutants are winning. So sometime after the next issue of uh, Iron Man, uh, sometime after what we've seen so far in Fall of House of X, exactly how far in the future, hard to say. Uh, Whenever it is, Nimrod says to Moira that, quote, our human allies are crumbling, and then he congratulates Moira on joining Team Robot, adding that, in 10 years' time, we'll be part of a perfect god machine. So they are, as we know from other places, planning on joining, uh, what's the name of that other dominion? The robot dominion? Phalanx, yes, thank you. So, you know, we talk about that, that's the plan he's talking about. Uh, Moira doesn't seem entirely convinced, probably because right at that moment, fiery glowing letters appear before her eyes. Those letters read, they don't win, I win. Now, Moira has been very obsessed with, you know, who's going to win? Oh, we always lose. The mutants always lose. In some places, we find out, oh, in this timeline, the mutants always win. Or now, it's Enigma telling her, they don't win, I win. So Moira says to these letters, so? The letters change to spell out, let's talk. So that's quite a thing, right? Enigma reaching out to maybe team up with the one person in all the universe who might be a threat to him. So what do you think is going to happen with these two now? Any any speculations? Any wild guesses? I mean, it could just take her into the Dominion, right? She'd seem to love that. Well, she wants to live forever. That's really been a thing for her. She's had all these lives, but this is kind of the last one. And she thought her actual last life was going to end with the whole cancer thing in Inferno. And that's when she became a robot and kind of had that next, whether we call this her 11th life or not, I'm still not quite sure. Uh, we talked about way back that she might have an 11th, this is Destiny saying, you might have an 11th life if you make the right choice. I wanted to ask you another question really quick. Sorry to derail, but- No, go for it. When Moira is talking to Nimrod over some like communicator and he, he congratulates her- Yes. You know, about joining Team AI, what is that like collapsed like shell robot thing in the foreground? Is that another Nimrod? Is that Nimrod the Lesser? Oh, I know boy, we were, I have we were no idea. Like, is this proof that there are two Nimrods running around in the timeline? It does look kind of Nimrod. It doesn't same same color schemes, mostly white, maybe a little bit of pink. Boy, I have no idea. I just I just kind of saw this as generic battle scene, like around the Moira side. There are two different places communicating by some kind of radio. The Moira side of things was lots of uh, dead looking Orcus goons. Like some of them have like the AIM beekeeper ha- hats on, and then Nimrod is just firing energy weapons at. Who knows what? So I, I didn't really look at those details. I, I thought it was just a generic battle thing, but yeah, I don't know. Who I think this is. is another Nimrod. So I think Could our be. speculation about there being two Nimrod, the middle child, perhaps. <laughs> so yeah, we got this team up, and team ups between villains generally don't work out, right? One of them betrays the other. Maybe they both betray both sides. Uh, lots of juicy possibilities for what happens when if Moira and Enigma kind of team up. So another really good, rich, complex, thought-provoking issue. Uh, Kieran Gillen's side of the end of the Crone era continues to impress. R.B. Silva's pencils and David Curiel's colors, they're really dazzling and glowing. Even all those, yeah, oh yeah, even all those standing around talking scenes in the first half, very visually engaging. Uh, I've complained in other books, like there's no backgrounds or I have no idea where any of this is happening. I can see the inside of this no place, right? It has a very specific look. It reminds me of, you ever go to the eye doctor and they take a picture of the back of your retina and you see the blood vessels there? That's, that's really got to be what he's using for inspiration for uh, what look, looks like from the inside looking out. From the outside of the no place looking in, it kind of looks like a giant cabbage. It's just, 
no one mentions that while we're floating around time and space in a giant cabbage, but it looks pretty cool. It looks, again, very specific choices. It's not just fights happening in a void. So got to give a major credit there. Uh, some of the facial expressions have some of that uncanny valley effect, like Cyclops at the beginning, who uh, to me looks like Blue Beetle Ted Cord. It's just a, a weird look for him. But, you know, those are minor, minor nitpicks. Mostly it looks fantastic. So I'm really excited to see what happens next. Uh, we had, uh, well, in the, in the Slack yesterday, I was talking about how I didn't know how I was going to explain this because it was so complicated. And uh, our, our good buddy, Gabe, uh, who uh, you know does a lot of the written reviews, he's sometimes on the Marvel podcast, a uh, big fan of uh, Predator, I do believe. He said that if you can't explain something, it's not good. I think he's specifically talking about comic books. And, and I, I wrote back to him, yeah, that's, that's not at all true. And I, I want to talk about that for a second, because some people want a comic book that's kind of a straightforward, heroic you know, comic book kind of story. And I think those comic books can be fantastic, right? I'm not putting down those comic books at all. I love to have a, a fun superhero romp. But I also think that comic books can be a different kind of story and still be good. And I think that's what's going on here. We have a much more complicated uh, back and forth timelines and concepts and thoughts and literary references. And I don't want every comic book to read like that. Right, I don't need every TV show to be Twin Peaks, right? But I love Twin Peaks. But I also like a nice episode of Seinfeld. They're different kinds of things, and I love that we have this level of complicated story also going on, also being told well. And I think that's a great thing for comics to do sometimes. And I'm glad it's around. And I, I think you're probably in the same kind of uh, I am, position yeah. as I am. I'm a I'm a on the record fan of. Final Crisis, and I think this is like several degrees more coherent than Final Crisis. <laughs> but it's, it's sort of a story that I feel like there's a lot of interesting things to think about, and it's doing something that you can only really do in comics, right? Like, indeed, we've got this idea of like however many timelines, right? If you actually tried to draw it, I mean, in, in this issue, we've got like diagrams, right, that try to help right. you understand it. I'm like, your diagrams are overly simplified, right? Like, if I were to draw <laughs> it, right, they just have like one line that's like, oh, yeah, the 10, the 10 timelines right I'm now, like, well, actually, it actually says looking at it right now there's a line that goes to 37 moira engine timelines so they're not drawn out there's like a blob there's 37 of them here which again for that diagram what it's trying to do is great but but yeah i again just the the nature of long form multi-writer storytelling over the course of years right kieran gillen gets to call back to all these things that happened five years ago but four and a half years ago in uh house and powers and and make it make sense in new kinds of ways. And and I love that. And not all complicated storytelling is good, right? We've read some complicated storytelling that is not good, just like we've read some simple stories that are also kind of dumb. So, you know, you want to do those one of those two-dimensional diagrams, like the ones that always tell you you're a libertarian, right? This way and that way. You could have good simple and bad simple. You have good complicated and you can have bad complicated. And so far, this is really good complicated. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's very high sci-fi, right? It's like time travel, magic, space, technology all meshed together, which is really weird. But I, it feels different to me. Like, I don't feel like I read the story before. And it That's does feel point. like yeah. the, it feels like the like natural successor to House and Powers. And after this, right, like, I don't want this to continue at this level for a long time. So I'm actually, in a way, it's like, yeah, go out on a big bang with this and then simplify for, you know, the next generation of X-Men for a bit. I do think that's coming. So I think that folks who are looking for more simple, straightforward storytelling, you may have a lot of that coming your way. So don't be too upset if we get our complicated storytelling for a little while longer, because I, I think you may be the ones who are more happy than us on the other side. But I don't want to be too pessimistic. I want to enjoy what we have now. And who knows, maybe the Tom Brevoort era will also be fantastic. But uh, I don't think I gave a number. I'm going to give uh, this... A nine out of ten. Really good book. Yeah, you're a little higher than me. Eight five, but this is still really awesome. And I'd say if this whole you know six issue arc ends on a high note, I'll probably reevaluate and bump everything up like point five or something. It does feel it. It does feel like week to week. This, I guess, that's the thing I want to say about this is this to me feels like it's paying you for reading it week to week and also paying you for having read a lot of the stuff before True. this. Yes, yes, yes. Which is what you want, right? Like I wouldn't. I'll probably reread this in its entirety at the end, but um, issue to issue, I don't think I'll have the same feeling, right? 
if you just marathon it as a thing at the end. Yeah. I, again, what I love, one thing I love about reading comic books week to week is all this time to speculate about what's going to happen next when we really don't know what's going to happen, which you, you can't do when it's right there in the next page. So that, that's, that's what I enjoy about the, the weekly grind of the comic books. Uh, speaking of the weekly grind, next week is going to be quite the grind. We have, well, I think we have five books happening in the X-Men Krakoan era, which is damn near a plethora. Uh, we have Dead X-Men number two, which I'm kind of wondering about because it almost feels like the whole purpose of that book has already been kind of cashed in. We know they found Moira. They downloaded her brain. What is this team going to do next? I don't know. I don't I'm kind of curious. There's a reference in this issue to like see, see you know, issues one and two of that series. So mm-hmm. maybe there was something extra to add. Maybe we'll find out how Doug Clone was created. That would be very cool. Uh, we also have cable number two. Now, I don't remember much about issue one other than kind of feeling like not quite as good children of the vault. But yeah, it's, I'm going to go back I'm and really read, read not excited one. about that one. Yeah, that was the one where it's like, oh, there's this other threat that cable wants to deal with that's worse than what's going on in the here and now. Yeah, we'll, we'll give it a, a good look. This is the Fabian Nisaeza written story. We'll, we'll talk about it. Uh, we also have Resurrection of Magneto number two. Speaking of complicated stories that I don't like quite as much as Rise of the Powers of X, but uh, we'll see what happens there. I was more high on that one too, and I'm excited for the next one. We'll see what happens. We also have Invincible Iron Man number 15, where I guess we'll finally get to see that invasion of Earth that happened in the past of all the other books we're reading. So that'll be nice. Strangely, it's like the one Jerry Duggan book that I consistently do like. It's like the only one that he seems to deliver on week to week. It's been the best. It's it's very odd. It, it's even the parts that weren't strictly X related. He writes a really good Tony Stark and a really good Emma, and that's that's what's important for this book. And finally, we have Wolverine number forty four. Continue the Sabretooth War, and I'm hoping that it continues in that nice turn it took last time, where it's getting a little more interesting than just you know blood and guts and gore and, and killing folks. And again, shocked to say this, but I'm looking forward to a Wolverine issue. Absolutely. Now, there that is five books. Uh, I'm not promising, listeners, that we'll talk about all five books next week. Uh, we'll definitely pick out whatever ones are most relevant to like the current ongoing story. We'll certainly talk about those. But we may end up kicking, I don't know, I'm going to guess maybe Cable into the next week, which is a much lighter week, just so we can kind of you know have time to really digest and give these things a talking about they deserve. Sound like a plan, Ruben? Yep. Sounds great. Okay. In the so- meantime, read more X-Men books. You go and do that. Bye, guys.